All right, let's, let's basically start there. My name is Alistair McGuire. I work at uh, LSE Health and Social Care. Um, this is um, the third of and final uh, showcase lecture on some of our work from LSE Health and Social Care. Uh, the first one was really a reflection on Julian Legrand's work. The second one focused on um, social care itself. And this seminar is going to focus on uh, more of the health work, although there is also uh, a third talk will be on uh, social care as well. A um, couple of housekeeping things just before we begin. Um, first of all, for those who uh, came, welcome. And for those who walked up the stairs, welcome indeed. Um, if you go down to the fourth floor, you can actually cut over a bridge down into the library lifts if um, the f uh, f fifth flight of uh, stairs going down is too much for you. Um, after the talks, we'll have a small reception with drinks outside and you're welcome to come back into the room. It's probably going to get too packed if we stand outside there. The talks themselves, each uh, speaker has an allocated time of uh, approximately 20 to 30 minutes with um, some question time immediately after. The discussant today was meant to be Maria Joffre Bonney, but um, she forgot it was her daughter's uh, um, birthday. So um, <laughs> I'm stepping in for her as, uh, as a reserve candidate, as a discussant. And then after the discussants really just to open up the, the floor for open uh, discussion across all three of the papers. So, in running order, we've got, um, first of all... Can I ask you a housekeeping question? Yes. Is this room looped? Is this? Room looped. Uh, looped. I don't know if it is or not. Let me just ask uh, Champa or Angie. Do you know if the room's looped for hearing at all? Um, there's no, no, unfortunately there's not. I'm sorry about that. Uh, it is going to be videoed and played back uh, so you can catch up hopefully on anything that you miss. Right, okay, so if you're asking questions, ask them loudly uh, and succinctly. Um, there's a couple of more people coming in, I'll just wait on them. The running order is going to be Zach Cooper. Um, who's going to talk about competition and quality measures. Uh, then, there's seats in the second row there. And then, uh, Irini Papanicolas, who's going to talk about measuring quality in the hospital sector. And then, Julian Fordor, who's going to be talking about social care and quality issues associated with the measurement of quality in social care. So, um, without further ado, let me just hand over immediately to the first speaker, who is Zach Cooper. I don't seem to have your... Oh, there we are. Yeah. Okay. Zach, over to you. Thank you, Allie. Bless you. Let's see if I can get this All right, so the, the idea of competition, I think, is 
you know, for better or for worse, really one of the, the most controversial topics in, in at least domestic British healthcare policy. And the goal of this research was as much as we could do to sidestep the rhetoric, to sort of take the politics out and say, what was the evidence on some of these reforms introduced by the Blair government in the 2000s? Okay, the, the aim is, you know, and I think uh, I speak for all of us when we say evidence-based policies is what we really care about. And what's the evidence on what impact these reforms have? Now, look, I, I'm an American economist living in London speaking about competition in the NHS. Um, I, I, I get it. And I'm sort of literally and, and figuratively playing an away game. And, you know, the more I talk about this, I sort of sound like the, the love child of Ayn Rand and, and Ronald Reagan. But, but genuinely... Uh, this was about patient outcomes. Okay, what did these reforms do? Okay, what did they do to quality? Were people living longer as a result? And, and what does that mean for what we should do? So what I'm going to do is talk through the, the theory underlying competition. Okay, how in theory this could impact quality. And then go through the results. And then hopefully we'll open it up and, and see what y'all think. So I, I drop y'alls. That's the, that's the other evidence that uh, you know I am indeed American. So let's just... Before we get, to, there's not a country in the world that's not struggling to slow down healthcare spending. And you know, for me, one of the places we then have to look is inside hospitals. Okay, so if we look at the, the U.S., healthcare is double the size of the automotive industry. Okay, if you look at the U.K., about half the size of the manufacturing sector. You know, this is you know when they ask Willie Sutton why do you rob banks because you know it's where the money is. Same thing in healthcare. Okay, hospitals are where the money is. Okay, so, so what are we talking about? I, I think we've got to talk about three things. Improving the quality of our hospitals. Okay, so doing a better job on outcomes. The things that matter to patients, satisfaction, looking at both the, the acute and, and chronic sector. Reducing some of the variation that's in there. And then doing that while we're reducing costs. And, and for me, at the end of the day, the name of the game is value. Okay, we get outcomes in the numerator, costs in the denominator. Okay, producing more for less. And so the question we were asking is, what sort of policies are going to do this? Okay, is choice and competition an engine that's going to raise value? So yeah, we just need to look at some of the descriptive stats to see how much potential we really have. So this is length of stay for elective hip replacements in the UK, or this is England in 2006. Staggering variation. Okay, what's that? About a, a three-fold variation in length of stay. Okay, imagine the potential for value by lopping this side off. Okay, getting them down to the median. Now we can look at readmission rates. Even more variation. So, so when we're talking about this, this value idea, better care Patients don't want to be, rid be you know, readmitted. It's not what they want. And lowering that readmission rate is also going to lower costs. And I think Irene is going to talk a little bit about it. So this is the potential. Okay, imagine lopping this off, getting it down to the mean. Then we look at death rates from heart attacks. Very, very similar story. Staggering amounts of variation across the country. How do we address this? And, and Julian Legrand, who's a... Is he, is he here? Not yet. I'm sure he's, he's on his way. You know, I think one of the, the things that he's done so well is, is identify what the, the dominant models are 
for managing hospital performance. You know, and, and what he's done is he's broken down to three models, trust, command and control, and competition. The idea of trust, and, and, and this actually appeals to me, is you rely on the professional ethic. Okay, you give hospitals the money and, and you hope that doctors are going to go back and, and nurses together. They're going to be the ones to sort of reduce that variation. Okay, now, I, I am a firm believer that there should be clinical leadership. Okay, but I am doubtful that that in and of itself is enough to reduce that fourfold variation in readmission rates. Okay, that, that trust in the medical profession on its own is a powerful enough tool to do what we need to do. So then we get this command and control model. And, and this is targets. Okay, this, is, this is what the Blair government did sort of 2000 to 2005. You measure and then you punish if people don't hit the, the targets. Now, I, again, I, I think this has a role. I think the, the, the UK experience suggests it can work. It lowered waiting times. But in a sector as complicated as healthcare, I just don't think it, it it's fits the part. You can't measure everything. You can't performance manage from the top. You can't micromanage the health system into doing things as complicated as, as delivering excellent health outcomes all the time. And so for me, we go to this third option, okay, choice and competition. And the idea is, is fairly straightforward. You measure. Okay, first and foremost, you measure. So what we want to know is what matters to patients. How did you do coming in? How did that compare to how you were doing coming out? Did you live? Did your quality of life improve? Did your satisfaction with uh, the, the things you could do day to day, your functionality improve? You measure that, you put it out there. Then you give patients the choice to go around the healthcare system. Okay, so no longer do they have to go to that hospital that's got a readmission rate four times higher than other parts of the country. Okay, they don't have to go to the hospital that are going to be waiting four days longer than where they would have otherwise. And you tie their choices to a reimbursement system so that money follows where they went. Okay, so I choose hospital A over hospital B. Hospital A gets my money. And in my opinion, that creates incentives for that hospital for hospitals across the board to step up their game. Okay, incentives to improve their performance. Patients are going to go to the, the, you know, if we can do it right, more likely to go to the hospitals, they're going to have better outcomes. And in the long term, we could see an increase in value. So again, five sort of sectors where I think we're, we're, we're talking here. Creates incentives for hospitals to step up their game. That, that healthcare is incredibly complex. It's evolving incredibly rapidly, and I think micromanagement from the center is just is important, but is not necessarily the tool that's going to drive the type of changes that need to be made. I think the other, which is really appealing for me, is it, it links the success of the patient outcomes to the success of the hospital. And I think the more we can do this, the better that we're going to do. Okay, the third is it, it forces bad providers out of the market. Now, I, I'm going to get flack. I, probably shouldn't say it with a, a camera rolling, but there are providers in the UK who should not be offering the care that they do. It's not okay that there are some hospitals with a death rate four times above the average. Okay, that provider should either be heavily sanctioned or forced to shut. And we can hopefully talk about that a little bit more. And I think it, 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 this choice and competition model gives doctors the ability to be doctors. Because we're not going to micromanage from the top. We're going to let you decide on what works. And as long as you deliver the bacon, produce the results, 
the money's going to follow. Now, there are, are very strong counter-arguments. And, and let's, let's go through these and, and sort of give them the credit they should be given. Okay, patients don't choose. Patients don't want choice. Now, I agree. There's some people who don't want it, who can't handle it. Um, uh, some of this, I think, the, the incentives come from the potential change. Okay, so not necessarily every patient changing where they go, but the idea that they could. Okay, I think that in and of itself creates some incentives. Okay, you need more centralized coordination, and we need to focus on structure. Again, we can look at London. What they've done for stroke care here has been magnificent. Okay, so nobody's sort of saying rip up, uh, you know, the Department of Health, get rid of Whitehall, and, and just have sort of competition seal the day. You do need this this central function. Then there's this idea of, of incentives to cream skin. You can. We can. This is my space. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Take my. That it creates incentives to cream skin. Okay, hospitals are going to want to get the healthiest patients, the wealthiest patients, not going to want to treat the folks who are sick. Again, I think this gets back to good data. Okay, first we've got to risk adjust our payments, so we're paying more for sicker patients. Then we've got to risk adjust our outcomes. Okay, we can't simply compare mortality rates. We have to compare risk-adjusted mortality rates. Okay, and then it's a, a, the, the other sort of frequent criticism, the threat to a universal service. Yeah. For me, the threat to universal service is that variation I showed you a couple slides ago. The threat to universal service is there's a fourfold variation in mortality rates. And to the extent that choice and competition helps reduce this, the happier I'll be. And now, the, the work that I'm going to show you right now is essentially saying, did it do what I said it would do? So you can sort of dismiss the management speak, you know, the dude in the tie who's sort of telling you a story about incentives. You know, did, it, did it back up what I'm trying to sell? And so what we did is we, we created a quasi-natural experiment. Okay, so the reforms come in, in in 2006, and we looked at, at hospitals exposed to competition, hospitals that weren't before and after, and we tried to see whether there was a difference. Okay, we, we control for patient and provider regional characteristics, as much data as we could get, patient-level data, hundreds of thousands of observations. And we tried to illustrate that no matter how we measured market structure, okay, how we define competition, these results didn't. And what we found was that, yes, so a, a one standard deviation increase, so going from a market where you had two hospitals to one with three, led to a third of a percentage point reduction in mortality after th uh, each year for, for three years. So that means a, a year or three years on after reforms are introduced, about a 10% reduction overall in the death rate. So it would have gone from something like 12% in a monopoly market to about 10% in a monopoly with one, in a market with one more provider. And that the results were robust no matter how we measured it. Okay, so I want to go through what we did. Okay, so this is sort of the, the timeline. Can you all see this close enough? No. Then I will talk it through for, for you. Um, Choice pilots began in 2002, started giving some patients some choice, okay, seeing how the, the program worked. They introduced payment by results. So this is this reimbursement system I talked about where money followed the patient. All the time, we had an increase in funding. We had some private sector providers coming in, although that was sort of a, a marginal issue. 2006 is when the key change happens. Every patient in England who's having elective care was required to have a choice of four, to four or more providers within reason. Okay, so patients had choice, and, and we viewed this as the policy on date. 
Okay, this is one of those three elements I described. Information, the reimbursement system and choice came together, hopefully created incentives for providers to step up their game. Now, one of the things we could naively do is say we're going to compare before and after. Okay, what happened before 2006? What happened after? The hard part about doing that is we can't control for, for the confounding factors that were also changing then. Okay, the targets that were in place. Okay, the, the increase in funding, cardiac networks. Okay, we've got to figure out a way to, to change some of our control for some of these other things happening. And the way we do that is difference in difference regression. Actually has its background in public health, and we can go back and maybe talk about it later. But the idea is you have two groups. One who's exposed to the policy, one who's not. You compare how they did before and after the reforms, and the difference of those differences gives you the treatment effect. Okay, so you look before and after a group that was in a monopoly market. That's going to tell you the trend. And you compare that with a hospital that was really, really exposed to competition. And the difference in outcomes in those groups is going to tell you the impact of the policy. And we make two key assumptions. Okay, these are the, the two assumptions that underpin the work that I'm about to show you. The first is that hospitals and monopoly markets weren't impacted by the reforms. Okay, so what I'm arguing is if you were a hospital and you didn't have a competitor within, say, 50 miles, didn't matter that we're giving patients around you a choice. Okay, you fundamentally weren't affected by competition. Okay, so that's, that's the assumption. The second assumption is that were it not for these reforms, the hospitals in competitive areas would have followed a similar trend. And we go through and test that. So the way we measured competition, we went to, to everyone's GP practice. We saw how far the patients traveled for, for most elective care. And we drew a radius around that captured 95% of the referrals. So that's the, that's the market for patients at that GP practice. This is a, a, you know, what it is, is superimposed on a map of England. The, the darker areas are more competitive, lighter not. It's hard to see. But this is the, the take-home. So this is the measure. So we get a 3% correlation with population density. Okay, what that means is this isn't an urban-rural thing. Okay, we're not, making, you're not, not measuring London did better after the reforms. It's very much about the, the spatial distribution of hospitals and how patients are situated. And so what we said is, did these areas that were darker here do better after the reforms were introduced in 2006? Did death rates go down? And we measured outcomes. Um, this is the two studies. There's one by Carol Proper who did very good work in, in our study. And across the, the, the two studies, we looked at 30-day mortality from heart attacks, looked at death rates across hospitals, we looked at patients' length of stay in hospitals. We looked at admissions. And we looked at expenditures per patient. Okay, these are sort of least worst measures. Okay, in an ideal world, would this be what I'd want to look at? No. But it's the best data that's out there. It's what everyone uses in the literature. And it's, it's pretty well verified. Now, a lot of folks say, look, you're, you're looking at competition in the elected market, things like hip replacements. You're measuring quality for heart attacks. Dummy. It actually was a, a very, um, there, there was a, a specific reason we did this. Um, the first is that AMIs are frequently occurring, that they have a substantial mortality rate, and I think crucially that good care results in the patient living, bad care results in them dying. Okay, that was really, really important for us. Now contrast that with, say, a, a readmission rate. Okay, I have my hip replacement, I go home, I slip getting out of the bathtub, I get readmitted. You know, is that genuinely the fault? of the provider. You know, with AMI in hospital, we know that if you lived, something 
went right. If you didn't, something probably went wrong. Is it a perfect measure? No. But it's, it's better than a lot of the others. Patient selection is not an issue. Okay, so, so patients are taken by ambulance to the hospital. So they're not selecting a good hospital, they're just going to their local. And the question is, did competition on the elective side make their emergency care better? And the third was this issue of endogeneity. Okay, so this is a, a sort of fancy way of saying circularity. We want to measure competition driving quality. Okay, that's what I want to identify. Is that happening? What I don't want to measure is quality driving competition. So, for example, a really good hospital might get every patient in their local area. They might drive the others out of business. And so a good hospital might spuriously be looking like it's, it's existing in a monopoly market. And part of the reason we chose AMI mortality is we figured folks who were choosing for their elective hip replacement weren't choosing based on heart attack death rates. Okay, it provided a, a bit of separation between the two measures. So, so I want to show it to you graphically and give you a sense. So we have the, the control is going to be a monopoly market. Treatment is going to be folks exposed to competition. Okay, we measure the, the trends in mortality before. And we assume that if nothing happened, they would have followed the same trend after. Except something did happen. Julian uh, was in number 10. He said this, this choice thing, you ought, to, you ought to try it. We get the policy introduced. And we see whether or not this group that's in a more competitive market did differently. Okay? Did it diverge? And what we capture is that this divergence from where they are versus where they expect it to be, in theory, would be the benefits. And what we did is we tested it through a knot in 2006. We made it path through 2006 so that we could control for something that would have happened before that maybe shaped the, you know, shaped the trend downwards. Okay, so this was the, this was the test. Now, I, I like papers where one graph tells you the entire story. Okay, I, I don't need to give you the 7,000-word version. This is the paper. Okay, the, the hash line is a monopoly market. Okay, it's, a, it's a provider with nobody else around. The solid line is a hospital exposed to significant competition. And what we see is if we look, let, let's just look at the monopoly market. It's coming down. There's actually no statistically significant difference between the two beforehand. At the break point, you actually see a slowdown. So mortality rates keep going down in these monopoly markets, but not as quickly. And, and some of that's because some of the spending from labor began to wear off. Some of the, the targets began to lose some of their bite. And generally, because you know, if it kept going all the way down, we'd have death rates of zero. Okay, England was making huge progress at this period, so it's, it's to be expected that eventually it sort of slowed down, became asymptotic. But if we contrast that with what happened in these competitive markets, we see a fork. That more competitive hospitals after the reforms did better. Okay, that they had significantly lower death rates. Patients were living longer. And, and at the end of the day, going back to what we talked about, that for me is what matters. Okay, these patients, not in London, but, but in, in markets that were competitive, are living longer after the reforms. And we've tried to show you that this is directly related to the policies that were introduced from number 10. We tried it, you know, this is getting a little geeky, but with and without something called hospital fixed effects. Um, so controlling for some of the things in hospitals that don't change over time, bigger and smaller, uh, composition, how they're structured, their management. 
with and without patient characteristics. So maybe you say patients in, in urban areas look different. Maybe patients in competitive areas are, are a little different some way. No matter how we, we control for it, with and without controls, we get the identical results. We try it with some, some regional trends. You know, maybe this is something to do with uh, you know, uh, London PCT, London SHA, doing something really radical. Same result. And I, I think, so this is a funny story. Carol Proper, who's a, a terrific em, uh, economist in Imperial, did a, almost the identical paper at the same time. Um, that's not our sort of uh, nice thing to have happen. And you don't want to find out that your competitors across the street are doing the, the same paper. Y'all are the ones who get the benefit. Okay, she did some things that I would have liked to have done. I did some things she would have liked to have done. The take-home is that our results were identical. Okay, she controlled for things like cardiac networks. Okay, she controlled for some of the local wage rates. Maybe that was the difference. And she controlled for ambulance times. Okay, maybe this is the better ambulance drivers in certain areas. And no matter what we threw at this, we consistently found this diagram. That in 2006, there was a fork. Okay, we, we believe that this is, is not a function of competition because the, the competition didn't really affect these guys. And so what we see is a speed up in the competitive areas. And, and nothing we could throw at this washed it out. So I want to just quickly talk about what's driving this. Um, some colleagues downstairs in, in the economics department launched a, a really, they, they call it bossonomics. Um, it's, a, it's a study on the impact of good management. The question is, does good management make a difference? And is having a really good management team lead to, to better outcomes? And they, they came up with this really fancy survey for, for analyzing. And the take home, they tried in a bunch of industries. This is manufacturing. And they found that a one standard deviation improvement in management led to all sorts of gains in these companies. So it, it led to a, a six-point bump in, uh, in their productivity, led to a, about a 40% increase in sales growth, and a significant increase in market share. So this is, it's picking up something. And so the question they then asked is, does this fit in hospitals? Do we see the same effect? And the answer was absolutely. Okay, the better managed a hospital was, the lower its death rate. So then they went a little further. They said, what predicts good management? And they looked at it a little differently than we did, found two things. Okay, the first was having clinician leaders, so doctors on the board, doctors as CEOs. The second thing was the hospital was exposed to competition. And I think this is the engine that's driving the results I saw. Okay, so after the reforms, some of the, the incentives in place focused managers on stepping up their game. When they stepped up their game, death rates went down. So I want to sort of quickly, this research has been, um, uh, it, it's made the rounds. So it was sort of featured in a lot of the, the newspapers and TV shows, Prime Minister talking about it in his speeches. And it's, it's brought up a lot of criticism. People, I think, who, who quite rightly care a whole lot about the NHS saying, I don't like competition, and I, I want to sort of poke holes in the argument. So I think it's really, really important for us to say what this research does and doesn't show and, and what we're finding. So this is really, really consistent with theory. Okay, this is, for those of us who, before the reforms, were sort of saying what impact it's going to have, fixed-price competition, where the only thing you compete on is, is quality, in theory should actually raise quality. Okay, and, and that's what we found. We have pretty robust evidence. No matter what we throw at it, we keep getting the same result. Two separate teams, two separate teams of investigators, similar data, identical results. 
We fell with all-cause mortality, so mortality across the hospital, and mortality from heart attacks fell. That that graph, no matter what kind of mortality I showed you, stays consistent. The other interesting part is they've done similar research in the U.S., and the magnitudes of the effects are nearly identical. Okay, similar research, different country, same magnitudes. Again, suggests that we're, we're not picking up an artifact. And then the other thing we found is length of stay dropped and cost didn't go up. And so we were, you know, back to what I was talking about earlier with value, that that's an improvement in value for the patient, or for the, the taxpayers, but most importantly for the patients. Okay, they were living longer, higher quality after the reforms. Now what doesn't this research suggest? It's not a London thing. Try that. You know, we said, did London do better? We'll, we'll put them as the, the solid line. No difference. Same trend. It's not reversion to the mean, um, sort of a geeky stats thing, but, but it's not that. This, again, doesn't have to do with public or private. Okay, so this isn't sort of a, a privatization argument. It's, it's about NHS facilities competing against one another and whether that saves lives and produces the outcomes that we all want to see for, for patients. It's not to do with patients' proximity to their hospitals, control for that, tested in a variety of ways. And then it's not about heart attacks. The, the reason we use heart attacks is it tends to be very, very correlated with other things across the hospitals. The better you are at treating heart attacks, the better you are very often at doing hip replacements. And, and we see that pretty often. So this is a, a hopefully a hospital-wide measure. And, and so now I'm going to conclude quickly. Robust evidence that you know, the, the title of the paper was Does Hospital Competition Save Lives? Pretty robust evidence that it did. Okay, there wasn't a whole lot that I could throw at this that, that washed out that result. It did so without concurrent increases in spending. Again, we were talking about value. This is a really, really good finding. Now, I also think there's a way to talk about choice and competition that doesn't get a lot of folks here to have the, the sort of hairs on the back of their neck stand up. Okay, if I said to you, we're going to publish how well or, or not well all the hospitals in the UK are doing, and we're going to give you a chance, and then we're going to say, you don't have to go to a hospital that's got a mortality rate that's four times above the mean. That's what we're going to do. If we describe the policy that way, I think it ceases to be quite as controversial as it was. And that, at the end of the day, was what this policy was. So I think what we need to do is, is strive to get the, the data out there on what's happening, to really measure the things that matter to patients, which are outcomes, to make it as easy as possible for folks to get to the best providers in the country and hope that those two together are going to get the results that, that we see here. So that's the paper, and, and uh, yeah, take some questions and, and see what you guys think. Thank you very much, Dr. Could you say who you are so yes, other sir. people, and remember that we've not got a hearing loop here, so could you speak up? Certainly. Yes. Uh, Roger Gartland. Uh, Dr. Cooper, has the paper been peer-reviewed? It has, Roger. It's it's coming out in the Economic Journal, which is a, a sort of leading econ journal in the UK. I think the probably, what, third, fourth best econ journal in the world. Yeah. Thank you. Hi there. Wendy Savage. Hi, Wendy. Sure. Could you speak up so yeah. people can hear? One question and one comment. The question is, um, that these hospitals seem to be subject to competition. Is this because you were in Birmingham, say, in 
of people were allowed to send to different hospitals in Birmingham because we didn't build any new hospitals. So, so if that were the case, um, and people chose a hospital which was already doing well, um, wouldn't that have made the hospital which they would have gone to seem worse by in comparison? And then my comment is, um, you said that um, waiting lists came down because of um, competition. No, they came down because of targets. Targets. Well, you neglect to say that they came down because the amount of money put into the NHS increased significantly. Well, what surgeons like to do is operate. And if they're allowed to operate, they will operate. And I agree that if they know that they're not doing as well as the people down the road, they're probably up their game, as you put it. Uh, I find it a rather unpleasant term. It's a bit American, huh? Yeah, it is a bit And I have lived in America, so I know what the healthcare system is like. Well, we describe the American healthcare system as uh, uh, islands of excellence and a sea of misery. I've, yeah, got, yeah. I've got a number of questions, yeah. so... so Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that really quickly. On the first point, the reason we used death rates from heart attacks is because you didn't get to choose. So the ambulance picked you up, took you to whomever. The, the, the competition we were measuring were folks doing what you were describing, which is moving around. The outcome was based on a, a patient who didn't have choice. And that was exactly why we chose it. So I, I don't think it is what you're describing. I think, I think you and I are actually talking about the same thing. Which is, which is how you improve patient outcomes. And, and I think that's what this showed. Per the, the money and, and waiting times, I think there's a lot of really good research comparing what's happening in England with what's happening in, in Scotland and Wales. Okay, so they saw huge bumps in funding too. And their waiting times without targets actually went up. And, and so I think if you, if you compare the, the different countries, it's a really good case study to, to examine now, we can talk, I'm happy to just hang around after we can go through that. We can come back to comments afterwards. There was a gentleman here and then a couple Yeah, of sir. Um, I'm Barry Silverman. Hi, Barry. I'm a member of the Patients and Public Advisory Group for London NHS and also of the Royal College of Surgeons. Um, and I think the question that I'm asking You'll have to speak up yourself, Barry, I think. Sorry. They can't hear it back. Okay. I'll, I'll repeat the question after he, after he says I've, it. I've got a researcher, so I can't present you with numbers. I have been involved in um, three projects yep. in London recently that um, might go just the opposite way to that which you described, uh, related to uh, cardiac and vascular services um, stroke and, tra- and stroke and trauma. Yep. Um, there, uh, a concentration of the skills in a single hospital and making sure that the practitioners in those hospitals were exposed to a volume so the more complex cases they deal with more of them in one place, the better was the outcome. So your argument is volume matters? Um, right. this, this is what has come for over three years, um, and clinical evidence is that this concentration, this exposure of practitioners to a volume of work um, has an effect, and that is the opposite. And, and, and that, is, that is, I think, a phenomenal point. I, I agree with you entirely, and I, I want to talk a little bit quickly about how that sort of fits with this research. This is really going to get Wendy upset at me. Um, I don't think every hospital in the UK should do everything. I I think volume does matter. So I'm actually okay with patients traveling further 
to get to these excellent providers that you're measuring and, and expanding competition across the country to get just the situation that you're talking about. So that we do have uh, centers of excellence, more, you know, more of those, less of the folks who are doing a very, very small number and getting some of these very, very high death rates. And, and I, you know, I think one of the things that, that I think competition will do is, is send patients to the, the, the hospitals you're measuring who are doing more and hopefully get less patients get into those and, and have them say either we're going to have to really do better or close. Okay, so it's not inconsistent. We've got three more questions for this session. We can come back at a later later you want date. You take three at one time? And then yeah, I'll take, if you, yeah. So take the three at the one time. I'm Babette Applin, and I'm from the U.S. I'm here visiting. I work in healthcare. Good. Um, my question is, did the results of your study occur because of transparent reporting, or did they occur because of choice? So how many patients made different choices? Okay, there was one at the back and one at the front. Yeah, go on. And I'm glad to have a patient choice, yep. but I think you shouldn't. When a patient is ill, mm -hmm. they don't want choice. I promise you when they told me I got cancer, I did not go home, click on the computer and look about all that. I panicked. I wanted the best. There's no yep. question of choice in it. I want the best. Yep. Given your status, at the moment, I can see that the choice promotes quality. But yep. given to its logical conclusion, you have everybody in the south of England heading to the Marsden for their cancer and no one else. And resource physically, the hospitals couldn't cope with all the patients who chose the hospital. So how do you do that? How, how do I split? Okay, great. Okay, yeah, and lastly. I have two questions. One is, um, how Could do you... Could you say who you are first? Sorry, my name is Naomi Fabri and I have two questions. One is, how do you account for ambulance driver's choice? I had the misfortune of being twice in an ambulance with my daughters this year and ambulance drivers choose and they want their patients to survive. So every ambulance driver takes you to the hospital that they think is, has the best survival rate. Mm -hmm. The other is, you mentioned flow, money, uh, fo uh, money following patients. Now, with something like cancer care and so on, it's a huge investment. So actually, if you start putting money into a hospital after the patients all went there, it's too late. You have to make the investment way ahead before the patient goes there. And if the investment isn't made, then you can't go there. So these, these are my two questions. And um, finally, um, what are actually the numbers? Because I'm sorry, you, um, I'm not a statistician. I'm not an economist at all. I'm a weird old um, sort of... Uh, English um, master's person but uh, the thing about it is uh, I want numbers like how many patients how many how, what was the survival rate you know, where is the cutoff point after which you co don't consider them that they have survived how do you make sure that they have somehow similar conditions and they're not half dead anyway when they go off to the hospital you know these kind of things okay um, three questions didn't. turned into uh, out of two but we're still uh, I'm going to I'm going to very quickly, so Zach, and then we can come back transparency. to Transparency. Um, first, I think transparency is hugely important. I think it made a tremendous difference. Um, it doesn't explain it because we see differences in different markets. So the, the transparency was across the country. We see that something happening differently in different parts with market structure. Um, if you told me at the end of the day that, that you were going to focus on transparency, I'd still be really happy. But I think competition is the tool to get folks to act on that data that, that is put out there. Um, 
the question about choice. Really, really important one. Um, three strands to what I'm going to say. The, the first is there's actually some really good research um, by it's Carol Proper and a colleague, Stephen Seiler, downstairs, looking at, at just the issues you're talking about. Um, who's choosing where and, and, and why are they choosing? It actually finds that the sickest patients, they're looking at cabbage, which you know, is a pretty severe illness. The sicker you were, the further you tended to travel, the more you shifted around. And, and, and I think that, that squares with me. The, the more acute my condition would be, the, the higher my risk of death or, or a not good outcome, the more I'd be looking at the Mars. And, and the question is, how do we get all the hospitals to be the Mars? Um, for me, competition raises the standards. And, and I actually think that, that, in fairness, patients with a very, very sick illness are willing to travel. And I think one of the things we see with this result is for the folks who can't travel because they're in an ambulance, as, as you said, this gets some of those local services up to snuff. It gets some of those ones who are on that far end with high death rates, hopefully doing a little better. Um, there's a question, it was about... Uh, ambulance times, ambulance time, numbers. Right. Um, you know, can I, we control for ambulance times? Um, no, so we can, uh, you gotta let me finish. Like, you gotta let me, you gotta let me finish. Um, we control for that, uh, about 60% are ambulance drivers. 60% of the folks just driving up to a hospital. I can't control for the driver bypassing a hospital. I don't think that's the norm, but it also doesn't account for across the board improvements in mortality. So if we look at the death rates across hospitals and take out AMI from that, we get the same result. And those aren't a function of ambulance drivers. So I don't think the ambulance story is, is really the, 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 the huge uh, missing variable here. In terms of outcomes, um, what are we talking about? We found that it saved, in terms of heart attack deaths averted, about 400 lives per year. So 400 people, because of this, are with us today who otherwise wouldn't have been. Okay, a one standard deviation increase led to a third of a percentage point drop. Okay, so three years on, if you'd had a mortality rate of 10%, you now would have had a mortality rate of 9%. Now, that might not seem like much, but if I told you we had a, a drug study that reduced mortality rate by 10%, which is what that shift from 10 to 9 is, that's that's a huge game. So leave it there. I will send you the paper if you like. It's got all the numbers. Okay, yeah. so we'll come back to it. It was half a million patients over that period. So it's all the heart attacks in uh, England. It's everybody who had a heart attack. So it's half a million patients. It's more patients than uh, any clinician sees in a lifetime. I think sometimes people get upset by competition, the word competition. I saw Lord Darcy, the surgeon at Imperial Talk uh, the other week, who said that surgeons are the most competitive individuals yes. in the world. And it's competition that keeps them striving for high quality. This is a statistical work which I think backs that up in aggregate. We can come back to the, the faith and arguments of that uh, later on. Now I'd like to introduce uh, Irene Papanicolas, who's going to talk about another element of uh, the reforms, this uh, fixed pricing, this payment by results, and uh, quality in the English NHS. So hi, everybody. Um, I'm going to be talking about a reform that was introduced at the same time as choice and competition, and really kind of is the, the financial side um, the fixed payment mechanism to hospitals. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, is this better? Yeah. Uh, so, um, payment by results was first phased in in uh, the financial year 2003-04, and then fully implemented for all hospitals in uh, 2000. 
0.67. And I'm going to be looking at what effect this policy had on quality in the NHS. Before I start, I'd like to acknowledge my collaborators on this uh, work, with uh, Professor Alistair McGuire and Elias Mosialis. So when we started this project, the question we wanted to answer was, what effect does payment by results have on quality of care? In order to do this, we first started thinking about what possible effects it could have on quality by looking at international experience and, and the theory from the literature. Once we had an idea of where it was that we wanted to look at quality changes, we then considered, how do you measure quality of care? We had data on outcomes. Um, uh, for several conditions, which I'll look at in a bit. And, and what we were really concerned with was how can we extract quality of care from these outcome measures? What are good methodological tools that will enable us to measure quality of care in order to understand what effect payment by results is having on, on it? So once we did this step, we could go back to our question and really look at some models to try to answer how payment by results has influenced quality of care. This is broadly the same journey I'll be taking you through in this talk, looking initially at the theory and the questions and before going through the methodological analysis. So starting with um, that first part, what are the possible quality effects that a policy like payment by results can have? Payment by results can be classified into a case-based payment system. What this means essentially is that providers, or in our case hospitals, are paid a fixed amount per case regardless of the actual types and quantities of services provided. So what this means in this type of system, it's very important how we define cases and how we set the payment for these cases. Uh, in the U.S., the cases are grouped according to diagnostic-related groups, or DRGs. In England, we have healthcare resource groups, or HRGs. Essentially, what they do is these classify patients into case groups, depending on their diagnostic and procedural codes, in order to have a similar cost grouping. The payment attached to case can also vary and does in practice across systems. In England, the payment represents the average cost per case across all hospitals. In theory, this could also be the marginal cost, the normative cost, or whatever you want depending on the incentives that you want to create within the system. Now, there are a number of positive and negative incentives that can result from this type of payment system. This study wanted to focus really on do we see increases in quality through um, efficiency and or do we see decreases in quality through various negative incentives such as quality skimping in order to release patients earlier in order to ensure that you stay within this fixed cost or even below it um, or some possible gaming behaviors such as moving patients into groups that are reimbursed um, at a higher rate. So really we're trying to, to understand what incentives are taking place through this payment mechanism. So what is the evidence so far based on England? We see that there's evidence of increased activity uh, across hospitals, um, reductions in length of stay, and reductions in costs. On the quality front, there's really limited evidence. There is some suggestion of higher readmissions, we'll, um, which normally would be considered an um, indication of poorer quality. We're going to question this later on. Um, in terms of gaming, there's no evidence. And in terms of quality of care for our own colleagues who did a study um, at the group, in their group at Aberdeen and found that there was no evidence to suggest an effect on quality of care. However, they noted that the risk-adjusted measure of 30-day, uh, I think, overall mortality rates that they used was maybe not sensitive enough to pick up a change in quality. So really, this is kind of the motivation for our study. 
to try first to find indicators that are sensitive enough to pick up what's going on, and secondly, to see if we see an effect associated with PBR. So this brings us to the second part of the study, which really considered how do we measure quality. What we did was we constructed two separate quality measures. Um, for both of the measures that we constructed, we used seven clinical conditions. The reason we picked seven conditions was to have a broad range of, of a spectrum of clinical um, illness and um, also admissions. So for example, heart attack will be admitted largely through emergency care, as Zach was just saying, whereas hip replacement has a large elective component. This allows us to see maybe what effect selection is having, which, as I mentioned previously, is a possible incentive through this type of funding policy. For all conditions, we had data on these four outcomes, so mortality and readmissions at different intervals, for the years 2000 to 2008. For hip replacement, we had data from 1996. Um, so using this data set, the first measure we constructed was a simple risk-adjusted measure of each of these four outcome measures. What we controlled for were um, some patient characteristics such as age, deprivation, comorbidity. And what we, the way we constructed the measures was by running a patient level regression, controlling for each of these um, variables and the hospital in which the patient was treated. We then extracted this hospital fixed effect which served as our measure of hospital quality. Essentially, this measure indicates the unobserved effect the hospital is having on the patient's outcome. So if you think of the raw measure as a noisy measure of quality, we are able to control for these and see what the hospital effect is in terms of contributing to quality of care. So this measure adjusts for some of the noise that we expect to see in outcome measures depending on different characteristics of the patient. However, it doesn't control for all the noise. It doesn't control for systematic bias, that, such as differences in hospitals, which will influence, influence differences in outcome. So to make an even more refined measure, we adopted a technique um, proposed by McClellan and Sager in the United States in 1999 and applied to health outcomes there. This technique, I'm not going to go into the technical detail here, is essentially a smoothing technique. It's based upon the risk adjustment measures, but what it does is it models them in a system of equations. Thus, it allows to take information from previous years of that, of, so previous mortality, and see how it affects current mortality. Because quality is dynamic. A hospital in a workplace, one, one year's quality is going to depend on how the hospital performed in the previous year. It also allows us to see what the relationship between the indicators are. So to extract information not only from each one of the quality indicators, but to see what the whole story is. So what do readmissions and mortality rates tell us together? And also through the model itself, we can understand how dynamic indicators are and what their relationship is. Indeed, we find that mortality, in fact, all four outcome measures tend to be influenced from indicators three years prior. So performance is dynamic in a hospital. Also, and this is a very interesting finding, we find that for most conditions, readmissions and mortality rates are negatively correlated. So this really questions, are high readmissions an indicator of poor quality? If they're negatively correlated, it could be that very ill patients who might have died if they went to poor quality hospitals, go to a good quality hospital, survive, but are readmitted because they had a very severe form of illness. 
So this suggests that for some conditions, in fact, high readmissions may be indicators of good quality, which is very important in terms of how we interpret performance results, especially in this area of accountability where we use them to incentivize or to often make choices based on providers. So for the remainder of this work, we used both of these measures to see if the results were consistent, and if not, which measure uh, was favored. Just to give you an idea of what these measures look like, this is one of the indicators for AMI, so 30-day mortality. The blue line represent the simple, represents the simple risk-adjusted measure, while the black line represents the smooth measure. Um, and what you see, especially, so this is a small hospital, two medium-sized hospitals, and a large hospital. What you see is a lot of variation in the small, the small hospital, and this is because of the extra noise that is inherent in a, in a hospital with few cases. Right? So what you, and, and in the medium size and the large size hospital, you see much smoother estimates. But in all four cases, the smoothed measure is able to adjust for considerable amounts of this variation. If you think of this in terms of a more macro scale, this box plot looks at the distribution of, again, the same mortality rates throughout the whole sample. What you can see is for the simple risk-adjusted measure, you have much more variation across hospitals, and indeed some extreme outliers, which are, again, the hospitals with few cases. Whereas the, smooth, the filtered measures, or the, sorry, the smoothed measures, adjust for this, and you have a much smaller spread. So we thought it would be interesting. If you were a patient, and you were making a choice based on mortality rates, you would want to see which hospital has the lowest mortality rate in order to go to that hospital. Well, depending on which measure you use, you would have a very different story. The red is these smoothed out measures, and the blue is the corresponding mortality rate from the risk-adjusted measure. What does this tell us? That depending on the risk-adjustment method that you're using, you're going to get quite different results for the quality of provider. And these measures are both created from the same underlying data set. So exercises of this sort in terms of benchmarking are useful to an extent, but should be approached very cautiously, as the risk adjustment method will largely influence what you find and which provider is good or bad. So now that we've kind of explained these two different measures, we can look at the initial question. So if we look at PBR and these two measures, what effects do we find on quality? So, if you think, as I said previously, the risk-adjusted measure is this unobserved hospital effect on quality. Now, these measures, recall, were constructed separately for every year. So, you can also think of them as the rate of change in quality from each year. We started, we, we labeled the initial point of our data sample as zero, and, and put together the rate of change according to each of these estimates obtained from the risk adjustment model and then the smooth model to create a graph of quality over time. What we found was, this is again for AMI, that in AMI, mortality was falling during the whole period that we were investigating for both the smoothed measure and the risk adjusted measure. And because the risk adjusted measure is, cal is calculated through this regression, you can measure actually the decline in quality in terms of percentage from the axis. So we find that in the period from 2000 to 2008, mortality, average 30-day mortality across hospitals has fallen by 
Average 365-day mortality, similarly, almost 5%. We find that readmissions have increased. But recall that readmissions and mortality for AMI were negatively correlated. So what we wanted to do was to see how much can this be associated with PBR. So we used these indicators and ran a regression to figure out exactly that. Controlling for various hospital characteristics, we find here that the PBR dummy, uh, as a value of zero before the policy was implemented and one after, is in fact highly significant for both the latent or the risk-adjusted measure and the filtered or smooth measure if for most conditions. The only one where there's a difference in significance is in year-long mortality, where we chose to prefer the filtered measure as we believe it's a more robust and refined measure. So the, the, strike, the, the findings, again, kind of confirm what the, the diagram shows about this large reduction in mortality and an increase in readmissions. And indeed, if you look at the goodness of fit statistics, you see that in most cases, the filtered model, or the smooth model, has a better goodness of fit. In, and this is because, again, it is able to remove a lot more noise from this outcome measure than the risk-adjusted measure was. So the other thing we wanted to look at was hospital variation. So Zach talked to you a lot about variations in readmissions and variations in length of stay. We wanted to see if, now that you're paying hospitals the average amount, do you see variation you're getting off? So if you look here, this is again for AMI. We have, I don't know if you can see, the dark brown line here is um, indicating 2002, so a year before the policy started to be implemented. The yellow line, 2005, so about in the middle of the implementation of the policy, and the red line is 2008, so that's the last year in our sample. What you see is a convergence towards the mean of hospitals. Zero here was the, um, each estimate for every year was normalized to a value of zero, which um, represented the mean. So this, this convergence towards zero indicates that there's less variation amongst hospitals. So again, we tried to test this with the model to see, is this associated with PBR? And again, you see the PBR dummy is very highly significant for almost all measures. Again, the, the only difference is here with uh, year-long readmission rates. So really quite a, a compelling case on, on both improvements in levels and quality and also an evening out of the variation. So another thing we wanted to look at was changes in activities. And in fact, there were two changes in activities that we found that looked interesting. One was in a pair of HRG groups for AMI, and one was in a pair of HRG groups for hip replacement. What we found was that um, E11 and E12, or AMI with complications and AMI without complications, had an interesting switch in terms of increasing and decreasing behavior. Uh, activity, sorry. We found increasing activity for the with complications case or the more expensive case and a decrease in activity for AMI without complications or the least expensive case. We found the same relationship for hip replacement um, in terms of uncemented hip replacement, which was marginally more expensive, and cemented hip replacement, where we saw a decrease. So we were interested in what is driving this change? Is there a, some sort of substitution going on from the least expensive condition to the more expensive condition? So we did two models for each of the pairs of cases to see if this was the case. One compared just the levels 
of activity in every year, and one looked at the change year on year to see whether there was a substitution effect. For AMI, so this is a bit confusing. These are the variables for just the um, levels regressions, and these are the variables for the difference regressions. They're the same variables, it's just that the difference regressions are subtracted, so they're year-to-year measures rather than the entire. We find that for AMI, there's no substitution effect. They're both increasing. And in fact, you'll note that this is the complications case. It is very highly associated with um, comorbidity. This indicates there's no substitution. What's happening is severe patients are coded as severe. For hip replacement, what we see is a substitution effect. So there's a substitution from cemented technology to uncemented technology. Why? Because it pays marginally better to do uncemented hip replacements. So what effect does this have on quality? For AMI, we see declining mortality for both groups and an increase in readmissions. But like I've said earlier, this does not necessarily represent pet quality. In fact, for AMI, we know that they're negatively correlated. For hip replacement, we were unable to construct the filtered measure due to gaps in the data sample, but using these risk-adjusted measures, so the a bit more noisy variable, we found, again, declining mortality in both groups, albeit small, and decline in year-long readmissions for the cemented group. So, again, we see quality improvements. So what looks initially as a suspicious finding, in fact, shows that through better coding and through a switch into uh, newer technology, we see quality improvements in both groups. So what are the conclusions? First of all, we need to be very careful with how we use quality measures. Um, Quality, especially through outcome measures. Outcome measures are very noisy. The risk adjustment technique that we choose to apply needs to be scrutinized, and we need to be very careful with how we use this information. Also, readmissions. It's not straightforward that high readmissions are indicative of poor quality, and I think we need to be much carefuler with the interpretation of that information. In terms of applying this to payment by results, we see quality improvements. I only showed the case for AMI, but the results were consistent across the board. In fact, I accidentally skipped over the slide that said that. I'll go over there now. (laughs) Sorry. Here we go. So we saw... um, 5 to 6% declining mortality for AMI and ischemic heart disease, 2 to 3% for stroke, myocardial infarction, TIA, and congestive cardiac failure, and at a much smaller percentage for hip replacement. And then there were mixed effects on readmissions. However, for AMI, MI, stroke, and IHD, there was evidence that readmissions were negatively correlated with mortality. So again, this should be interpreted with caution. So... So we find that there's improved levels of quality across conditions, different amounts, less variation between hospitals, and better coding, and a switch to newer technologies as long as that there's this monetary incentive to do so. So if you want to see more about both uh, risk adjustment techniques, both working papers with, this, with, a, with these methods are available on the LSC Health website, and thank you for your time. So, um, I think that partly addresses the second question which Zach didn't answer uh, of yours, which was you wouldn't want financial incentives to be up front um, because you'd want the money to be there 
so that the, the treatment was available. Well, this work is not inconsistent with Sachs' work. It's basically saying that fixed prices deliver higher quality because the uh, providers are competing over quality here, and the fixed prices are leading, in a way, to improvements in outcome. Um, this, if Sachs' work was only half a million, this is about two million uh, people, was it, in total? Yeah. Okay. So it's, again, everybody within the English Health Service that we're looking at. Questions specifically for Irene? One is, you talk about quality measures. How many patients did you actually speak to? <laughs> I'm sorry, but I, to me, I don't know how you can measure quality if, you know, somebody might have a new hip, but they might have been starving for a week in the hospital. Do you think dying is bad quality? Um, it's an extraordinarily simplistic, and the pr you was mentioned I, I that... I wear my reductionist label with huge uh, pride. No, sorry, but you mentioned that healthcare is extraordinarily complex. You have been pre-reviewed, -re pre but with an in an economist magazine, I, as far as I understand, you haven't been pre-reviewed in any clinical or medical journal, as the far British, as I understand. It's actually the British Medical Journal. Yeah. Well, you, hang on. Before we no, get into can that, I just, sorry, yeah, can I just say, get, uh, yeah, obviously death is is an issue. We can come back to that in the general. Measures, uh, you know, yeah, I agree with you. We can basic. come back with that in uh, to that point, and I will come back to. you at the end, specifically Sorry. on the arenas. There are many dimensions to quality, obviously, and we will come back to that point. Second, sorry, have you also correlated it with staffing levels? Because within that period, that staffing level within hospitals has changed quite drastically. There were quite a number of times when a lot of uh, people were re-employed. So, so in each of the models, related? we have a dummy controlling for um, every year in order to remove any yearly changes from to control for those. And those were significant for every year, but the effect that we associate with PBR is controlling for that. Question back here and then one at the back. Mm -hmm. uh, two. Right. Uh, from the Audit Commission. Um, I'm very pleased to see us so heavily cited, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I wasn't quite clear from looking at some of the tables whether you were refuting what we'd... Uh, Oh no, it was just that the increase in readmissions I wanted to, to draw attention to to note that that's a particularly tricky indicator. Yeah, no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. a bit later on, oh. I might mean, be a little bit uh, stupid, but um, perhaps if you could just quote me like an R squared number on the correlation between PBR and yeah, well, if they, were, they were different for the models. They were about 30 to 20 percent in terms of the level levels model. So you can see them down here. I don't know if you can see. Not huge. <laughs> um, it, it varied by condition. So I've only presented the AMI one uh, due to space constraints. But uh, for some conditions, it was... So what's the broad conclusion that actually it probably didn't make much of a difference either way? 30% of the difference. Yeah. <laughs> um, you'd want a 30% difference, wouldn't you, in terms of controlling for risk adjustment and controlling for smoothing over time. Um, whether that's small or large is a qualitative interpretation of a statistic. Yeah, there was one question at the back. Could you say who you are and speak up? Please? Now, I know it sounds like that, 
to the sense that it was about patient, uh, hospitals being paid for patients that came to them, so the money comes the patient ostensibly. But actually, I think in terms of the effect of PBR, in terms of how it was felt in the acute sector, it meant that people began to be paid fully for every episode of care that they were undertaking. And previously, before that, we had been paid on block contracts. And if, as we all know, massively rising year-on-year demand for healthcare, we were often finding that we were having to do additional activity at no extra cost under that previous system. The effect, therefore, PBR the acute sector was not, oh, my business is threatened by patients going elsewhere. You know, I'd be quite interested to take that point up exactly later. But that we were, for once, being paid for all the activity we were doing and, therefore, could fully staff and fully cover our costs and, probably, offer the better quality care that we wanted to offer because of that full reimbursement. So I think to equate that research, but the Zach's research, I would question that. And then secondly, um, I've got one second. Well, whilst you think, we'll take the other one. No, no, I do not. Right. I think one of the key things <coughs> that payment by results did was made people look at the variation in their clinical performance in terms of length of stay, day case, etc. Versus the average, which was what people were set on. And therefore, we had a clear reason to eliminate any poor practice that met on length of stay. So it was very good in terms of focusing our, ourselves on so it doesn't surprise me that it does have a strong correlation with the quantity. That's not about competition. That's about appropriate reimbursement. I mean, I agree. I agree with the, the incentives that you're explaining. I think Zach's paper is a bit, is a bit different because he does look at this difference and difference. So he is comparing you know, the, the treatment group without. So he is taking into account the quality improvements in, in that time. It's a different model. I think my findings don't contradict that. I do... Oh, no, I, I mean, they, they don't go at dense. Yeah, it's different. It's, um, no, it's, it's about, I mean, I'm looking at something that was applied to, to all hospitals. I'm looking at the, the payment mechanism. It's linked in that they're part of uh, the same policy. I mean, in that, in that they were introduced as payment by results financing, also the money following the patient. I think... I think where you can see also some of the differences really in, in the incentives through the two policies are really in that last bit where you see the changes in activity. And I think there, sorry, I'm going backwards. I think there you can really see that through this, especially in the AMI case where we see this improvement in coding, I think that is very much linked to what you're saying and through this payment by results effect. And I think really there you see a lot of the differences between kind of this this financing policy and, and the competition. Okay, there was an, a last question before we move on to the last section. Uh, my name is Sally Arzegui. I work in the BMA, but I'm just so known as the I just had a question, and I know that the Audit Commission work, and um, they, they kind of acknowledge this, and I'm sure you have been all talked as well, but it's just how, how do you go about isolating something like people when there is just a mass of policy reforms happening at the same time. And that also obviously relates slightly to, to mm -hmm. Zach's work. I mean, he touched upon it a little bit. I mean, that? that's, 
very difficult to do in in when there's differences being introduced year on year. Again, I mean, I, I mentioned previously we added these year dummies to try to pick up any of the noise um, from that that's happening through changes in the other years. We're limited by the model and the extent that we can do that. I mean, also the measures themselves do focus on trying to eliminate a lot of noise from patient characteristics and then the this vector autoregression technique a lot of systematic bias which would be caused by hospital differences so really what we tried to do with this work was focus on quality measurement and think about how we can do that to extract th this true signal and then in the the models the PBR models you know really with with the year effects try to pick up anything else. I, I mean, this goes back also to your point about measuring quality. This is this is a work that's measuring outcomes. I'm not saying outcomes are the only measure of quality. In fact, I think you know there are many measures. Quality is multidimensional. It, it encompasses patient satisfaction, patient experience, you know, processes of care, outcomes of care. This is this doesn't claim to to, to pick up everything that's happening. It's looking at outcomes and seeing what information we can you know get from that. So yeah, I think it needs to be taken together with other work, together with work from other measures, just patient-reported outcome measures or process measures. But in terms of what we're doing, we're trying to control as much as possible for the noise that influences the outcome and also within the model. Okay, we can come back to other questions on this uh, later. Let's move, thanks, Irene, to the last talk by Julian uh, Fordor. Whilst we do... Uh, Julian Legrand reminded me that we're always faced with trade-offs. Here we've got a trade-off of being warm, no air conditioning, versus being noisy, not being able to hear. So would you rather hear, or would you rather have the air conditioning on? Yeah. You'd rather hear. You'll suffer the I do, heat. I do speak quite loudly, I'm told, so right. that's the influence on your Okay, it was mainly the young people who left. Uh, they're not quite old enough. Not to social care. No, no, no. As, a, as a social care work, uh, um, researcher, I'm quite used to uh, half the audience walking out when we move from the health part to the social <laughs> care part. This is uh, this is not an uncommon effect. What a pity. I agree. I agree. So, so much so that I, I feel obliged to start with the question of what is social care that, because sometimes uh, the audiences we speak to uh, aren't fully up to speed with some of the nuances of it. Uh, so having done that briefly, uh, I'm going to talk about um, quality in social care to continue the theme of the afternoon, um, how it might be measured, and then talk a little bit more about the potential impact of services on quality. But actually, I'm going to focus really on trying to trying to bottom out this concept of quality in um, in social care, and I think that does have uh, parallels with the healthcare sector as well. So, this brief overview: social care. What I'm really going to talk about today is mostly long-term care. I'm going to mostly focus on older people, although it does apply to a certain extent to older adults with uh, various disabilities. So long-term care, i.e. people in care homes, residential care, uh, people receiving home care packages. These are services that generally help with the consequences of people's impairments. So people who have long-term underlying conditions normally has an impact on the, how uh, they can function in their daily lives, has a negative impact in that way. Just to say, I, again, 
a focus on formal care, but in the social care arena, it's informal carers that do by far and away the most work in this respect. You can think about social care's impact in terms of meeting people's needs. So if people have impairments, they can't do things for themselves, then care steps in to try and help them do those things. You can also think of social care to a certain extent uh, helping people to improve their underlying condition or at least their own ability to cope with their condition to improve their productivity and to an extent to try and mitigate further uh, 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 negative consequences of their condition through time. So this is a difficult question, of course, to, and I thought that maybe the best thing to do is start with this sort of broad idea that the aim of social care is really to improve people's well-being or quality of life, which is a nice, easy thing to say and a really quite difficult thing to measure. So the quality of services in this respect is the degree to which they can go some way to restoring people's well-being. If people are in good health, um, they can function fully, then they have a normal level of well-being uh, as they're affected by these long-term conditions so their well-being falls, services are there to try and improve that situation but what actually is this well-being concept we've used this sort of onion plot here um, with the notion of well-being or utility as economists, economists call it in the centre and put it in a sort of little cloud here because it's a pretty intangible idea, actually. Quite easy to say. Uh, as I said, quite difficult to measure. But what we do know is it's pretty strongly correlated with other factors which are easier to, me to, to measure. So you can think of people's well-being being directly affected by how well they can function. And if you're talking about social care, then relevant functions are really simple things in life, like being able to clean yourself being fed, being safe, and also broadening out slightly to have a sense of control in your life, a sense of dignity, to be occupied, to be socially engaged, socially engaged. all the things that um, are factors in quality of life. You step out again, you can, you can see that that might be correlated with the choices that people make about how uh, they are supported in their condition, and this ultimately goes back to their capability to achieve these things and the resources and uh, their own disability or their needs level to begin with. So this is a sort of marker that sets the scene for how we might tackle this problem of measuring uh, well-being. Now I've said that as an idea what we'd like to do is measure the change in well-being that services generate for service users. But before going into that in a bit more detail, it's certainly true that a range of studies have used intermediate factors. And there's a range of intermediate factors, and I've put a few that I've sort of plucked out on the slide there. So some people have looked at things like staff qualifications, service reliability, process activities, um, you know, the sorts of things that happen in care homes, for example, how staff engage with service users, environmental standards, what's the quality of the, the home that they're in like, these are all relevant, I'm sure, in the sense that they are correlated ultimately with well-being. The problem is, though, we don't really know what the correlation is unless we can measure well-being. So we can only assume that they, if, they, if they are done in a, in a good way, then that has a positive impact. But we need to establish that with a, a, a greater deal of robustness.
So what we've tried to do is develop uh, a toolkit to measure our well-being or quality of life as it relates to social care service users. And we call this ASCOT, and this is Adult Social Care Outcomes Toolkit. And this is available uh, on our website, and I'll put up a link at the end. So how do we tackle this problem of measuring outcome or measuring well-being? Well, as I've said, to do this in a global sense, you could just simply ask people whether they think their life is better or worse as a result of receiving services. And people do that, but it is relatively blunt and it has a, lot, a number of problems associated with it because it's difficult to tell exactly what's going on. Do services really help or is it a range of other factors that affect our quality of life? So the approach we've taken is to, rather than ask about global well-being, that sort of intangible thing in the middle, is to step back one layer and ask about people's functioning. And we asked for each of those components of their quality of life, how they would rate those at the moment, uh, from a, a range going from poor through sort of adequate good and an ideal state. And what you could then do is, having asked people about their level of functioning in the range of domains I'm about to show you, you can put these things together um, and, uh, in a sense, kind of add up how each of these components are impacting on people's lives. And I'll come back to talk about how that might be done. Before doing so, we want a measure which is sensitive to the effects of services, self-evidently. We want it to be reliable and valid. It's also very useful if it's applicable across a range of different social care services. So, you know, we're not just comparing care home A with care home B. What we'd like to be able to do is compare daycare services with care home services. So we need something that is pretty generic. It reflects the relative importance of those functioning factors that I've talked about. And... Uh, without wanting to label the technicalities of it, that it's anchored. Um, anchoring is a process whereby we can make comparisons by anchoring each of the individual analyses that we're doing to one particular state. And often these things are anchored around being, being dead. So you ask people to compare well-being with a state of well-being when you're dead, uh, in that people can anchor around that. So in the ASCOT toolkit, these are the, the domains that, um, that we came up with. And as by way of background, what we did, we talked to lots of service users about... <laughs> getting a little plug there. Talked to lots of service users about what they thought were important factors in their lives and how... Uh, and, and picked those which were potentially relevant to social care service use. Now, the trouble with these things, of course, is that, you know, that there are potentially an infinite number of factors which might be relevant... And you have to boil these things down to a sort of manageable number. And in the end, these are the ones we came up with. The first group of four are what you might call your very basic functioning. So they're about personal cleanliness, they're about having sufficient food and drink, they're about feeling safe, they're about having a clean and comfortable environment. Slightly higher level, arguably, the next set of three relate to social participation, uh, your contact with uh, friends and relatives, very important in the qualitative work came out that people uh, really valued having a sense of control over their lives, wanted to feel like they were in control and not being uh, done to all the time. 
It was important for people to be occupied. Just because you're old and frail does not mean that in any, by any stretch of the imagination that you are content to sit around doing uh, next to nothing all day. So occupation, very important. And for all, for all of us, a sense of dignity, having a sense of dignity in our lives. So these were the kind of things that came out as important factors in that work. So to give you an example of how we implement this, and this goes back to the four levels, I'm choosing the occupation domain. So we ask people, which of the following statements best describes how you spend your time? And I'm not going to read them all out, I know. You may not be able to read them, but essentially they go from the really poor level where people don't have anything to do or nothing that they value through to able to spend their time in a valuable and enjoyable way. So you ask people to select which they think is the most appropriate to their situation. And you do that for this domain and for the other uh, seven domains. Now, the trouble is that with that is that it gives you uh, a, a sense of people's outcomes in a range of different domains. But if you want to come up with something sort of global, you know, to say that something is better quality or worse quality, then you have to find a way of adding that up. Because it could be that some people are doing well in certain domains but not doing very well in other domains. So how do you interpret that overall? And the traditional approach here is to use a preference study. Uh, what it allows is that people can compare different states within those domains. So you're asking people to trade off. You're saying to them, okay, would it be better to be occupied but not very clean? Or would it be better to have a um, good level of food or uh, not feel very much like in, you're in control of your life? If you do that enough times with enough people, you get a pretty good sense of what people think are important domains and levels and what people think are less important domains. And this is the essence of these preference analyses. So they rely on, on a whole range of people making these judgments. What we did was uh, a number of stages in this research. To begin with, we did studies in the general population, asking them to make these trade-offs. And we did a, a sample of 500 people and then a follow-up of 500 people uh, a year later. And we also asked uh, about 450 service users to do the same exercise as well. So we want to get both a general population idea of what's important amongst these domains and also a sense of what service users thought. With the potential idea that maybe service users, because they're used to these services, not used to the situation they're in, may have a different set of preferences than the general population. As I mentioned before, we also did a study where people were asked to trade off between certain configurations of those domains with being dead. Now, I'm not going to go into the technical details. You can read that in our paper. But you're asking people really to um, make choices about the time that they would prefer to be in certain states uh, and compare that with, um, with being dead. So the final weight study we used was a, was a study of 1,000 people in the general population. Um, and we adjusted that using the results from the anchoring. Uh, and the slide is very low on this screen. You can't really see it very well. But these, these bars try and give you a sense of uh, the relative importance that people had. 
Now, you, you may not be able to read it, so I'll talk you through it. Control was the most important domain that people uh, valued. So, to go from the ideal state, which we've arbitrarily set at one here, right through to zero at the bottom, where you have the highest level of needs or the poorest outcome. Next important <coughs> down, occupation. Um, uh, in fact, safety, sorry, was next, then occupation. And so what you, what you see from this slide is a sense of the relative importance that people placed on those different domains. You can translate these things as we've done on the axis into numbers, and these are just weights that then you can use to add up the score for, for everybody across these domains. So you might have, if someone said, okay, I've got a, my, in my situation, I think my control over my life is ideal, give that a value of one. If they thought that their safety was at the some needs level, you give that a value of 0.3, and you just add up like that, and you add up to the total. And that gives you sort of a composite or overall sense of their well-being uh, measured in a quantified way. So it's a quantification of essentially a set of qualitative assessments of people's situation. This is the relationship we got from the study, the preference study where we asked people to make trade-offs between the domains and the study where we asked people to do time trade-offs anchoring to death. And what you actually find was a pretty high correlation between the results. These are, these are different techniques to come up with a preference weights, but we found very high correlations between these, these, these factors. And it was a nice straight linear relationship, no, no fancy non-linear relationships. It's easy to draw a line straight through the middle which was very nice, handy. Okay, so that gives you a sense of how we might measure out outcomes. So we could go to a, a service user and say, look, please fill out this questionnaire or please tell us about your states. Um, what we'll do is we'll record the information, we'll add it up using the preference weights that I've talked about, and that gives you a score for how uh, high your well-being is. But what we want to then do is to be able to attribute the effect of a change in well-being to their service use. So if they use services, how does that improve, hopefully improve, not always the case, but hopefully improve their well-being, and to what extent? So here we get into this issue of attribution. Now there's a number of ways you can do this. You can do this in the, in the classic kind of randomised control trial. You take one group of people at random and you give them one type of service, you, you take another group and they get the, the usual service, and then you, you make a comparison. You measure the well-being in one group, you measure the well-being in the other group, and the difference is the effect of the service, the treatment effect. And you can do this to you know, relative degrees of sophistication. That's great, uh, except in social care, there tends to be some practical problems. I call them practical problems. They're not probably insurmountable, because these things have been done, but they are practical problems, not least of which it's incredibly expensive to do this. And being social care, research is very underfunded, so uh, the resources don't stretch that far. So what we wanted to do is, one, we, we wondered whether there was a much more pragmatic way of getting to this answer. And this is the, the slightly controversial bit. Instead of doing a, a, a big study like this, could you not simply ask people what they thought their well-being would be in the absence of the service? So you get them to say, okay, you've received home care or you've received a care home service and you've answered this questionnaire, we've rated your well-being. 
Could you tell me for each of those domains what you think your life would be like if you didn't have that service? So in the absence of service. And then you know, they give you another set of eight answers and you can add these things up in the same way. And you get two well-being scores. One for with the service and one for in the absence of the service. And again, if you take the difference, you would hope that that gives you a sense of the impact of the service. Now, it's more controversial because it's potentially open to criticism along a number of lines, not least of which it's difficult for people to imagine certain circumstances you're asking them to, to, to hypothesise what the situation would be like without services. This is not actually a current service. Having said that, though, in social care, you quite often get people that are really pretty well aware of what services do for them. They're, they tend to happen, are, they, you know, by definition, they're a long-term thing. Um, they know what the effects of services are in their own minds, and they actually find doing this task, we, 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 in terms of asking people whether they find it difficult, very few people do say that they find it difficult. They, 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 they can accomplish this relatively easily. So not only do we do the comparative stuff, but we also try uh, this, uh, this route, which we call the expected quality of life. So expected in the absence of service. Okay. So this chart, oops, um, that wasn't supposed to cover up the axis. Eh? <laughs> this chart shows you. Um, it's a I think they call them cobweb charts. It's got um, how many say seven? Is it? Seven? No, I don't know. I, I played around with it. I shouldn't have done. I changed the colours because you couldn't see them very well. Um, it doesn't matter. It's the size of the effect. It's got the domains <coughs> on each of the points of the cobweb. Uh, so you've got the accommodation, you've got um, personal care, meals, safety, social contact, occupation and control. And this is just a sort of visualisation. So we asked care home residents what their current level of well-being was. And by and large, they, they showed that the further you are out, the better you're off. So if you're right in the centre, that's the poorest situation. Uh, the, site, the, the shape and area of this blob is pretty large. These are the people with care home uh, services. So care homes seem to be doing a pretty good job of... Um, yeah, that's good. A uh, pretty good job of catering for those more basic outcomes. So it's pretty good at keeping people clean, pretty good at feeding them, keeping them safe. was less good at keeping them occupied, giving them a sense of control, uh, social contact. The red blob in the middle is when we asked them what they think thought their, their outcomes would be in the absence of that service. And you can see it's very, very much smaller. And again, the further you are out, the better your outcome. So people were saying in the absence of service that their well-being would be very much lower than it is with the service. The difference in the areas between those green blob and the red blob is the impact of the service. Uh, and you can do the same for, this is home care services. Again, the green blob is your well-being with the service, and the red is people's hypothesised well-being without the service. The difference in the areas is smaller for, for home care, partly due to the fact that most home care people have less need. Um, they're less frail, their conditions are less severe. So the potential impact, the the, the the, the amount that a service can improve their situation is, is reduced. 
but it's actually a pretty similar story in terms of where services were having impact. Uh, pretty good on the basic stuff, less good on the higher level uh, domains. We went on to look at what uh, factors might influence people's well-being. Um, and this is the study of older people in care homes. So for their current, for the, the, the difference, the gain in their well-being, what were the factors that seem to have the most uh, impact or highest correlation with those things? Well, it turned out that, that people with high levels of need in the first place gain the most which is, again, pretty self-evident. If you're functioning without services is very low, your potential to gain with services is much higher. So people who had problems in washing, had cognitive problems, showed much better improvement. The next thing we looked at was uh, the star rating of the care home. Now, a star rating, for people who don't know, is, is, a, is a zero to three star rating that the regulator, CQC, gives to each care home after a, an inspection. Um, and what we found was that, uh, and I'm sure CQC were, were happy with the result as well, that, that three-star and two-star homes uh, were associated with better well-being improvement than zero and one-star homes. So what it's showing is the evidence of correlation. It's saying that to a certain extent, the quality ratings, the sort of process quality measure that, that CQC do, is to a certain extent correlated with the level of improvement in well-being. That was a, a statistically significant result, but the effect was actually pretty small. So the difference that a three-star home made over a zero-star home in terms of the impact and of those services on people's well-being wasn't actually very big. So it's significant, but pretty small in effect. Uh, residential care homes did better than nursing homes. Um, I won't go into that result too much. Interesting one, actually, in terms of home sector, you get voluntary sector homes, private for-profit homes. We didn't see any difference in that respect. There didn't seem to be any difference uh, between them. Uh, this is um, a study now of home care service users, um, and here we are looking at the current level of well-being. So not the not the difference, not the difference between current and hypothetical without service, but just the current level. So, so how well are service users faring at the moment? And again, not surprisingly, if you look at a bunch of sort of needs-related factors like um, visual impairment, unable to wash. ADLs are activities of daily living measures, um, things like ability to dress, feed oneself, and so on. If people reported having them, they almost invariably reported having lower well-being, lower current levels of well-being. Again, not surprising if you're in an impaired state, the likelihood is your well-being will be lower than otherwise. What it also showed is that uh, taking the average level of home care service if people had the average level rather than no home care service, their, well, their well, current well-being was quite a lot higher than would have been the case otherwise. So again, it's showing that, that services have an impact on well-being. You can see that in terms of the quality of that service, it can be measured by the change in well-being. Okay.
So how can we use this information? I think that um, there is quite a large potential to use this kind of information. I mean, the downside is, of course, it's, it's costly to collect. We'll talk about some downsides in a moment. But potential uses for this information in social care are quite significant. Uh, at the moment, um, the plan is to incorporate these outcome measure, this outcome measure ASCOT, into the user experience surveys that um, the Department of Health is going to run with councils of all people using social care services. So that will give us a marker to measure well-being of all service users in the survey through time, uh, for different service types and for different client types. So again, very potentially very rich set of information to understand some of the dynamic impacts of different services. These things could be used potentially by the regulator. So instead of uh, going armed with clipboard and tape measure, maybe regulators could ask people about their well-being. We did, as I said before, see some correlation between quality ratings that they do now and quality as measured by change in well-being. This information, I think, would be invaluable for resource allocation decisions. So at the moment, the way that social care works, uh, you have an assessment done. If you are of sufficiently high need, then you get service. What that doesn't tend to account for is the potential for services to improve your situation. And arguably, another way to allocate resources is not to say how big is your need, but rather what is your potential to gain from services. And this information would allow you to go to some extent along that line. Commissioning. Well, if you could assess the relative cost effectiveness of services by looking at how much well-being improvement they produced against the cost of those services, it would give commissioners a pretty good sense of what were uh, cost-effective, good value for money services, and what weren't, and therefore to adjust their resourcing commissioning decisions uh, on that basis. It could also be used uh, in the academic literature itself to look at the effects of, say, competition or reimbursement rate that um, we heard about earlier on. It's interesting that I'm... The difference between social care and healthcare in this respect, and why a lot of healthcare research use the measures that um, we've heard about before, is that in social care, these things just aren't measured anyway. So it's not like we have a data set out there of potential quality indicators. There's very, there's very little out there to, to use. You might get some information about how much is spent. You might get an information about what services are actually being provided. But apart from that, very little information so you may as well, given you're starting from a pretty blank slate, to start measuring outcomes rather than trying to measure some of these process factors. Incidentally, some of the literature on quality and competition in social care, very, very low baseline here, not anything anywhere near the sophistication of the work you've heard about today, um, shows a pretty mixed picture, not least because in social care price is not fixed, so pre people are trading off between price and quality. So your expectation that with a fixed price system, more competition might lead to improvements in quality is not necessarily borne through in social care because uh, it, competition could lead to lower prices and have a um, potentially negative impact as well. Potential issues with this approach. Uh, this is all very new stuff. It's embryonic. It's been done in health uh, through health through qualities or EQ5D is a, is a common measure 
but in social care, this is this is all pretty new, and thus far, uh, the various validity exercises, robustness exercises, uh, are ongoing, but um, needs to uh, be taken to their conclusion. The attribution problem is still very difficult. As I said, I guess, and there's arguments about this, but I guess um, RTTs are still seen as the way forward, the gold standard. Um, but can the pragmatic approach, which is far less costly and far easier to do, um, be sufficiently good that it, um, you know, we can go down that, that route? Because well-being measurement is, is, is burdensome and it is resource-intensive. So final thoughts. I think uh, we would say that there are, seems to be significant benefits from having a kind of effectively a social care quality, quality-adjusted life year. Uh, has practical implications and research potential, but still relatively early days with ASCOT and more validation work to do. And even when we do that, then we still have to actually start going up and out and applying this and developing an evidence base around how services impact on well-being. So potential there, but still quite a long way to go. Thank you. I mean, uh, we um, the work that we, we did here was mostly about older people, uh, and there are there are some issues when dealing with people with cognitive impairment or communication difficulty. Um, but the care home study we did used uh, a an observational approach. So for people that were unable themselves to be directly interviewed about their uh, their domains, their well-being. We used an observational approach where we trained a series of observers. They spent a range of time with service users in service settings, and they tried to assess people uh, on in, in those domains on that basis. So, you know, clearly it's a difficult thing to do, but those observational techniques did allow us to get some purchase where it's it's inherently quite a difficult thing to do. More broadly, um, you know. Well-being is just as important for, for mental health service users. I mean, it's, it, what we focused on is, is social care-related quality of life, so we call it, i.e. that stuff that potentially social care is likely to have the most impact on. That doesn't mean that you use it in isolation. You can use it with health measures in exactly the same way. So you can look at people's health as well as their social care-related quality of life. But, I, I, I mean, I, I, 
my, my personal view is that that you can use these things for mental health service users. Um, you know, you give them a, a, a treatment or um, uh, services and, and support, and you find out what impact that is, those services and support had on their well-being. I, I don't think any of those those domains are inherently not suitable for people with mental health problems. Um, but you know, we might argue about that. Maybe the emphasis is different. There are two questions: one here and one three. Actually. Mm. And thinking about in the real world where we have uh, you know, prices determined by the market, we observe quality. Yeah. And thinking about why don't we observe that in social care? And maybe a related point that I'd like to discuss maybe later on about that non fixed price results for healthcare and what we would observe there. Uh, why do we have this price competition which drives quality control? Yeah. That's a question. Okay. But in terms of the research, I did wonder um, about whether instead of doing RCT, you could take those people who were in the home care setting and match them with those people who were in the residential care setting for characteristics and, and to see what the differences were of, of the two services. Mm -hmm. So not quite a pure animal as well, but yeah. um, using a different sort of methodology. Yeah. Particularly the point about the on the second point, the short answer is yes, seems like a good idea, and, 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 and we should do that. Yeah, well, probably haven't got the time, but um, yeah, no, that's something that we could we could certainly look at. Um, on the on the first point, yeah, the evidence bases I mentioned on this whole quality competition uh, in social care or long term care is mainly U.S., um, and, uh, but it's pretty limited, and is methodologically is not very um, very good actually put it bluntly uh, and it's, it's giving us a, a mixed picture um, we we are doing some work as well on competition in, in England um, and uh, we're putting together at the moment competition measures by looking at um, again the sort of distance weighted numbers of competitors or number of competitive bids um, what what we're finding so far and again very preliminary results which I, well, I didn't want to talk about them too much now is that for local authority supported or council supported residents, i.e. people who receive some public subsidy, uh, we were finding that competition reduces quality. And quality here was measured by quality ratings, so the star ratings of the home, which you know are not a fantastic measure because they don't correlate that well with well-being uh, changes, but nonetheless it's, it's as good as we have at the moment. For the self-pay market, uh, the reverse was true. So what we were finding is that competition tended to push up quality. Uh, and, you know, as we said, the, the, the key difference here is prices are free. So in the social care market, you see a massive range of prices, from council-supported people at sort of 450 a week through, well, literally sky's the limit, but £1,000 a week for a, for a self-pay care home is not at all unusual. So huge price variation in the market and quite a lot of quality variation as well. So... The, the, it's, it's actually much more difficult to theoretically hypothesise which way the competition effect is going to go, whether it will be uh, positive or negative because of these, um, these, these counteracting effects. Two other questions, and then I'll open it up to all three. Yeah. Um, I'm Nicola Lassery. I'm involved in officer for uh, local authority social care services. I just wanted to add something to your response to this lady. Um, 
I've seen um, there are examples of um, outcome measures um, being used for people with mental health issues um, amongst other um, client groups. I'm not sure about drug and alcohol yet, but if you were to look up um, the Recovery Star, they've been doing quite a lot of projects with charities like St. Mungo's and the Southside Partnership, where they actually work with service providers to um, train the staff mm -hmm. to measure the outcomes at the beginning and at the end of an intervention in a very similar way to the ESCOL model. Sure. Um, and it's, it seems to be going down quite well because it directly relates the user's day-to-day -day experience right up to the commission. Okay, thanks for that. There was a question here. Um, when you talked about um, well-being mm -hmm. and you listed um, particular things you looked at, mm -hmm. um, did you take a look at to what extent well-being is linked to the community in which the social care is divided? Yep. Which I mean, um, a current cost-benefit trend is out of um, open access services into um, community hubs, mm -hmm. and therefore services which were provided in our multi-ethnic area, um, a Turkish dining club, a Cypriot one, or yep. Somalia's run it, uh, the council says we can't afford three or four small clubs like that, wham, it's going to be a community hub mm -hmm. club. Mm -hmm. Now that's, that's going to take people out of their ethnic communities into, who knows, um, a generic. Yeah. And to what extent is that likely to impact on well-being, and to what extent is that being measured because it's happening now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, forgive me if I, if I um, brutally summarise the question, but, uh, but but I think what you're asking is is, is whether environmental factors as well as this, or, or, or where services are happening is a, uh, an important factor as well in impact on well-being. Is that is that fair? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I we, we fully expect that to happen. Uh, thus far, we have not being able to pursue that as much as we'd like to but I, I you know I expect that to be the case um, I'm, I'm trying to think I guess the only the only relevant work that we've done so far on this is, is where you can you can compare different parts of the country so there are some huge geographical variation in these relationships uh, population density urban rural factors, they all seem to have very important impacts on how well services are received, how well they impact on well-being. So that, that's a step in the direction of your question, but that's as far as we've got. But I imagine, I, um, I, can't, I couldn't, bit, couldn't imagine that, that would be the case. In a, in a rural area or an open country area, people are going to be much or much, much less in terms of their ethnicity. Um, where I live, 43% um, BEM and widely distributed, yeah. and people just like being with their own. Yeah. Um, and now um, the trend is away from being with their own, and I'm sure that's going to have an impact on well-being, but I don't think it's being measured. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we, we of course, are trying to measure social care-related well-being. So um, what we're not trying to look at well-being overall in, in, in populations. We're just trying to see what the impact of social care is. Um, we did. Have, we, I mean, I guess relevant to this as well is that we, in these preference studies we, we, we did, where we asked people to weight the relative importance of the domains, um, we did see quite a lot of difference uh, in preferences between different parts of the country. Um, and um, I won't go into details of the, of, of the results, but what, what you did find was, especially in north south divide, you, you saw that people in the north of the country 
tended to have slightly different set of preferences about what was important in those domains than people in um, the southeast or south of the country. And so, you know, I fully expect and would be flabbergasted if we didn't find those sorts of influences. So I think to take the question one step further, maybe, it's really important to try and control for those things. You don't want those differences to bias the results you're getting in terms of the impact of services, and this is the attribution problem. So we don't want a service to look good just because it's being provided in an area where people's well-being is particularly high already, for example. Um, what we want to know is what the impact of the services are themselves on, on people's well-being. It's going to be affected by those environmental factors, but we want to be able to account for the size of that impact. Missing right, okay, so we were going to have a kind of wrap-up session, but I think probably given the time, it's better to hear your views and get more of your questions. So could I ask the other two speakers just to come up here as well? And then if you have any specific questions about any particular paper, then uh, possibly you could address them to the individual authors. There was one question here... And then another couple of questions. So let's start with this one, which was on social care. Yes, I'm Gordon. I'm from Camden Bank. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd be interested whether you look into delivering of uh, social care. Uh, when I came across various uh, way how they deliver the social care, be it for mental or old age or home, uh, they term personalization of social care. Yeah. Uh, can you? say with the north and south divide, did people look into personalization of care or whatever, or is it a term, terminology they use to uh, control the funding? Uh, they gave the two sides to it. Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, personalization is, um, is a really key policy idea in social care. So, uh, and the manifestation of that tends to be in terms of instead of giving people services, um, what you give people is a personal budget and, uh, and allow them to use that budget in whatever way they feel is best to meet their needs. And so uh, we've already begun to do some work on trying to assess whether that mode of working, whether to give a personal budget, seems to have a better impact on people's well-being than if you use the more traditional service route. So. Uh, there was a big study uh, a few years ago that colleagues at PSIU undertook. Undertake. Uh, but the comment from the users was that they're trying to control the funding by personalization of uh, various services, whether it be pharmacy or whatever. Yeah. Uh, do, do you agree with that, or is uh, just a comment or just a phase or whatever? I don't know. I'm just trying to think how cynical I'm feeling about this. Um, I, there, there was there is evidence that for for some client groups and actually mental health service users thinking about this now, um, they they um, they seem to value personal budgets a great deal. So you know there was there were there was a quality impact of, of having personal budgets um, for them. Whether whether or not the amount of help they got was reduced, whether it was actually saving money, I can't um, recall the results in that respect, but I, but I do remember that the, the, the quality impacts tended to be positive for those groups, less so actually for older people. So the sort of cost effectiveness of personal budgets 
was quite well established in the, in that case, um, but less so for older people. So there were differences between different um, types of, uh, of people and, and their use of services. But personalisation, yeah, I mean, it's a huge issue. One of the potential difficulties, I think, is how to set the, the personal budget, how to determine what size the personal budget should be. And thus far, most councils have struggled with this, and what they've tended to do is an assessment that assessment tool. So you're assessed, that gives you a set of points, and points are converted into money. In one of your slides, between the lines, I could read something personalised. Yeah, there yeah. A couple of lines. Well, our, our argument is actually... Maybe you should think about potential outcomes as, as a better basis on which to set personal budgets if you can find a way to do that in practice. So okay, rather than uh, need... A cure, please, Sorry. So we'll move on. You can I can talk about up. this stuff from there. Yes, I know, I realise that. <laughs> My question is for Zach Cooper. Is, um, could you say who you are and yeah, speak up a bit? Okay, there's one question here, one over here, and then. Were you not asking? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll try and ask one which uh, kind of is for free in a way. Um, so, it's basically something that's kind of. Actually, I don't think we have had fixed price competition in the NHS. 
Very quick responses so we can get to other people. I mean, I, well, I guess starting, I mean, I think we can debate the fixed price, variable price one. Sure. Um, I, I think the real, one of the, the very nice things about this idea uh, of competition is it doesn't work in one. In the NHS, there's often a sort of obsession with structure. It's got to work in one way. If we just get the, the format right, the, the PC, uh, GP commissioning boards, we build a hospital this way or that way, it'll work. We need to identify the mechanism. I think one of the really interesting things about competition is it works in a variety of ways. You know, one of your, your fellow audience members asked a great question about transparency. That played a role. Okay. Fixed price competition played a role. The incentives were probably different at different institutions. And healthcare is incredibly heterogeneous. And it, it works to have a policy that has a heterogeneous offering. So th that's why I tend not to like these things that are very, very command-driven. One size fits all. Yeah, for one that works in a variety of ways. I think one of the um, maybe understated effects of payment by results has been the effect it's had on coding and so I guess kind of echoes that transparency. And I think really the last the last part of my presentation with, the, with that bit of AMI is a, is a neat little case study that, that kind of shows that by attaching money also to coding and to activity in that sense that you're 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 creating more incentives to work with transparency, and I think it will be interesting what you're saying, extending it to looking at the later time periods and seeing if that is, that is consistent throughout. But I mean, throughout the work, that was the bit that surprised me the most and really made me rethink about how the incentives were working. And I think in the NHS especially, because there isn't this history of itemized, uh, per individual level cost collection, I think that, that trying to code individual patients really you know, changes the way things work. And I think ultimately a lot of the quality improvement is driven from that. Um, briefly, I, I, you know, I think there are some some uh, cross-sector learning, uh, social care through actually just you know piecemeal rather than I think deliberate policy. It's grown up to be very competitive. So now you know ninety percent of care home placements by councils are outsourced to the independent sector. It's a, a very massively decentralised market even now. There's a bit more penetration by large corporate providers, but even so, only 
25% or so of the market is by uh, the corporate boys. So you've got 10,000 care homes. The market is very competitive, um, and you know, what we've seen is, is, is very low price margins, so much so that big organisations like Southern Cross, um, albeit partly, <laughs> I imagine, due to their poor management, but they, th- th- there's not enough fat in the system to sustain in any way bad management practice. So you know, that's why we're seeing Southern Cross. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I'll lay this point. You could argue it's good value for money for the taxpayer because we're not paying excessive prices at all for our social care, it seems to me. But then if we get to a state where prices are... or, or where quality is beginning to really be sub- subject to negative pressures, it's falling below what's acceptable, um, you get large organisations going out of business, so there's big sustainability problems, then you know the question marks are starting to be more involvement so let's take the final three questions and uh, there was a person here person here and person here then we'll have to go outside yeah thank you my name is Richard Bourne I've managed a lot in the health service but I trained as an actuary and we know about death and an experiment I did um, I was very angry about Dr Foster and mortality rates because I thought that was nonsense so I took three hospitals seven years worth of mortality data just the deaths divided by the activity, so there's no coding, inputs, nothing, removed the seasonal variation and plotted the graphs for elective and non-elective care. And they showed some very interesting things, some of which are blindingly obvious, like they were all going down. But they were converging. But the one thing they didn't show was any acceleration in the improvement around 2006. Now, you would have expected that from your work. It might be that my work's nothing like as sophisticated and clever as yours, but it's not a difficult piece of experimentation to repeat. It takes away a lot of the variation very simply, and it should show an acceleration, and in the work I did, it simply didn't. Well, maybe you could take that up, as it's a fairly specific, different data sets. This is HES. I don't know what mortality rate you're talking about, it's 30 like days, or, well, Dr. Foster cleans it in a slightly different way, but it would be interesting to take that up outside of it, unless there's <laughs> well, not according, you're dead on one day, or one week, or one month, or one year, but sure, pursue that, yeah. General question to all of you, did you collect this data sitting in ivory tower, did you meet the patient's or GPs or, or uh, hospitals individually, all of you? Or did you have a consideration of GPs' practices? You seem to be patient choice. You've completely forgotten about GPs. They are the main choice. When you go to GP, to GP you can't go to any hospital. Mm-hmm. Your GP recommendations, 90% of the elderly people, Physically challenged people depends on GP's accommodation. It seems to be you are taking America. I do not know how it happened in America. This happened in UK. GP's 90% accommodated. So, what they buy? 90% are what? Of the choice coming from GP's. Yeah, well, we we can answer the choice of the I'll try to to the first point, but I think. Um, The question was essentially did. Was there any discussion with GPs or providers or patients? Because most of the choices are ameliorated through GPs. Good, good summary. I think that's uh, <laughs> about right. Um, 
I mean, so the first point, and it, first of all, we've got to thank you all for, for coming. It's hot, and you all stuck through this. The reason we do this is to present evidence as best we can about what works for patients. But I, genuinely, I'm not sort of up here saying I want to sort of take the wood to hospitals or, or GPs. Um, to that end, yeah, I actually did spend quite a bit of, of time, you know, sitting in GPs' practices, watching them use Choose and Book, and seeing some doing better and, and some doing worse than others. I went to hospitals, I, I see doctors regularly, like my good friends are doctors and, and run hospitals here. Um, to, the, to the extent that the GPs were on choice, that, that was a key part of our paper. Well, we spent pages talking about that. The, the, the GPs are the ones helping people around the system. We call them the agency role. That, that I don't know a whole lot. I'm, I'm, I couldn't sort of diagnose my own hip replacement anymore and I could fix my engine if it busted. You know, but I, I do depend on GPs and I think they do play a, a crucial role. Anybody else want to say anything about that? Or we'll move to the last question, formal question. I, I'm just a manager of fairly large companies, so I'm a bit puzzled about what you do with management information. You have a wonderful collection of information, but I always ask, well, what do we do next? I mean, a successful, large, private corporation seeks to have monopoly power in its field as far as it can and does away with competition. It doesn't like subcontracting anything to somebody else because there's a risk involved unless it absolutely has to. That's the model. Also, they have complete flexibility to move their staff around to get the right people at the right place at the right time. Something the National Health Service cannot do because hospital doctors are uh, employed by doctor, uh, by a separate company, you know. Um, so, uh, I'm really, question, really asking you, you've got all this lovely management if a young person came into my office with all this stuff, I'd say, well, you know, what is it that you want the National Health Service not to do anymore, uh, or what would you like it to stop uh, doing? Um, my last question is this. I mean, what do you mean by a competitor? Um, is it just a neighbouring hospital that gets tariff payments uh, for some reason or other, because people like to go there, or it's a bit nearer, or because the GP has a fancy over there, or what? Or is it uh, the, what you hear at the moment, which is uh, along the lines of any willing, competent new entrant, uh, which frightens the life out of me, because, uh, you know, uh, as soon as you do that sort of thing, the national interest, which is good patient care, that's a, a Secretary of State's responsibility, it's, uh, it's a serious matter for a government, gets right out of their hands. So, what is a competitor, and what do you think the health service might be doing as a result of all this information? Because I don't hear that people go around and say, well, to a doctor, why is your you know, mortality three times the people down the road? That's the way you manage things. It's an indicator, but it's not an action sheet. What is your action sheet? <laughs> Start at the far end of that. <laughs> I mean, just uh, I'm gonna I'm doing a broader talk on, on the NHS and the Social Market Foundation on Thursday. It'll be sort of closer to, to what you're talking about. I think the beginning and the end of your comments are very closely related. You use the data to police the hospitals that are there. For me, at the end of the day, the reason healthcare struggles in a variety of ways is we don't know what good care looks like and we don't measure it. Okay, what matters to patients is how they do after their surgery. What is good competition and bad competition? What is good competition? I think that's a great question. It's not I, I think, yeah, sure, I think, no. yeah, let, me, yeah, let me finish. I, I think the U.S. is a great example of where competition hasn't worked. Okay, it's been zero-sum competition. Uh, who can get the easiest patients to treat in circumstances? Who can build up the most market share? 
And at times, that's because some of the incentives haven't been right. From heavy price competition without really doing a good job measuring quality. And that's why across the board, one time, across the board, across the board, we heard consistently with the three of us the need to measure quality. That, if there's a take home from this, it's measure how providers are doing and then create different forms of incentives for people to, to make sure the standards are going you got to measure. I mean, if I said one thing, it's measure. Well, Sorry. Well, let's, let's, so let, 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 let the speakers answer, and then I think we can take well, it well, outside. Can I just afterwards. say that the uh, whole history of uh, uh, liberalization in this country has been a failure because we relied on price regulation. Mm -hmm. You talk about uh, electricity or telecoms. What happens is that uh, capital yeah, investment disappears. Well, we price regulation, which I think is what you're talking about. No, it's not I really. It's quality outcome uh, regulation. It does not give you the natural well, let the, interest. Let here. the speakers have the response mm -hmm. to your two original questions, mm -hmm. and then you can take the debate outside. So you, I th found it interesting how you started with corporations, and I think a lot of uh, performance measurement today in healthcare systems actually comes from what we can learn from corporations. Corporations. I mean, take the balanced scorecard as an example that's been applied now to many healthcare systems. In Canada, for example, they use it in Ontario to assess their their healthcare system. And I think what we're doing is we're trying to learn from 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 management and corporation. And why do we measure quality? It's 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 not only to penalize. It's to know what to do to improve. How can we improve a national service if we don't know what's going on? And I think I mean our touch. Zach was talking about competition, yes, but a lot of it is about what can we do with the information that we have. The information that we have is limited, but what are the tools that are available to utilize this in the best way possible to evaluate what has been happening and to forecast so providers know the limitations of the information that they're using to make choices, but also to inform policy to, to know where, where there's problems in performance and what we can fix. I think, I mean, I think Definitely what we're arguing for is, is more transparency, is management, is moving towards this model where companies know what's going on in their company, well, of knowing what's going on in the public service so that we can change things to fix it. Social care, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, social care, I mean, it, it was, in some respects, it's a big natural experiment, really. Uh, a lot of councils simply outsource their services because they, they thought it was cheaper in the private sector, and by and large... You know, the bottom line, it was cheaper. It was a lot cheaper than their own in-house providers. But what they didn't do was to see what the impact on quality would be. So they didn't really know. They, they, you know, they, they were very highly, and still are, if not, if, if, if anything, more highly budget constrained at the moment. And and so they outsourced a lot of this. And as I said, now we've now got a very big market. It's it's compared to many other parts of the the economy. It's it's very decentralised. Um, there's, a, there's a huge lot, a huge level of potential competition, and uh, and so having having seen this happen, really want to know: is it actually producing quality? Is it producing enough quality? Is it giving us a good return on the public money that we see? Are we content to have very low price services, but you know have on a fairly regular basis scandals in papers about the quality of the care that's being provided? Uh, and the only way we can begin to address those questions is to find a fairly robust way of measuring quality um, and to, to look at those issues. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I see what you're saying, and I think th there's, there's a whole debate about what the mechanisms are and what the right policies are. But, the poss you know, the, the, the fundamentals are still you can't really begin to inform how well policy is doing in, on quality unless you can find a robust and reasonably reliable way of measuring it. 
Right, I'm going to call a halt there. Um, thank you all for coming, especially coming up the five flights. If you do want to avoid them going down, go to the fourth floor across the library. There's a lift. And I'd especially like to thank our three speakers today for their <laughs>